Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This is PA Books, featuring authors of books about Pennsylvania's people, politics, history, and business. This week, Dennis McElnay discusses his book, Juniata, River of Sorrows. Dennis McElnay, author of Juniata, River of Sorrows. Why is, it, why is it a river of sorrows? It's a river of sorrows because in the 1750s, when the Juniata Valley really was the known Pennsylvania frontier, in that 10-year period, about 1,000 colonists were killed, kidnapped, or tortured on the Juniata by the Indians. Why? Because of the uh, encroachment of the Indian land by the colonists who had driven the Lenni Lenape Indians, the Delaware Indians we call them today, from their traditional homeland in the Delaware Valley westward, first to today's Sunbury on the Susquehanna River, today's Harrisburg on the Susquehanna, and not long after, through the Juniata Valley and westward across Pennsylvania into today's Ohio in less than 70 years. This tribe of Indians numbered about, is estimated to have numbered about 9,000 at the time and was driven all the way across today's Pennsylvania less than a century. Some of the Delaware Indians, one tribe, the Minzi, the most warlike of the three tribes of the Lenni Lenape, retaliated with a series of, of terrorists, we would call them today, raids on colonists in the Juniata Valley in the 1750s. This period's called the Indian Wars in Pennsylvania history. Where are the Lenni Lenape now? Uh, that's a good question. E extirpated, I mean, drifting you know, with the wind, as, as it were. There's a few, uh, I've read that there are a few still uh, Delaware Indians uh, in Pennsylvania, in Ohio, uh, Michigan, I've, I've, I've seen reference to them as, as well. But they are extirpated as uh, is another tribe, an ancient tribe in the Juniata Valley called the Uni Uata Haga, uh, a branch of the Iroquois. For people who don't know, a couple of basics about the Juniata, where is it? Um, the, Juni the main branch of the Juniata is in central Pennsylvania and extends from a village called Ardenheim near the town of Huntington, uh, eastward, excuse me, into the Susquehanna River at Clark's Ferry near Duncannon. The Juniata crosses thus Huntington, Mifflin, Juniata, and Perry counties. How long is it? It's 100 miles long. Uh, almost exactly from Ardenheim to the Susquehanna at Clark's Ferry. The Juniata watershed spans 12 counties, unlike the main branch itself, and square miles of 3,000, some 3,400 square miles, the watershed itself. It's a third the size of Maryland. Now, what exactly is the point that the river starts? Can you point to it and say this is where it starts? You, you, you can. It's called the source point of the river. It's called the origin in geology, and it is... It is at a place called the Point. There's a Pennsylvania Fish Commission access there called the Point Access near this village of Ardenheim that I, that I mentioned. The, the issue, however, about the source of the Juniata 
um, is contested today. I've had people uh, ask me about the source point, the origin of the Juniata. Some people claim it begins on the Frankstown branch, one of the two major branches of the Juniata. Others claim it begins, the river begins on the Raystown branch, the other major branch. This issue, by the way, I uncovered, I uncovered in my research was contested as, as early as the middle 1750s when colonists near today's Huntington could not agree on the source point, like today, of the Juniata, and petitioned the Pennsylvania provincial government to send surveyors there and determine the source, the origin of the Juniata. Those colonial surveyors uh, reported to the government and later to the colonists that the source point, point they determined to be at what we call the point today in Ardenheim, and that's the, that's the uh, basis of, of, the, of the beginning of the Juniata, its origin. Do the two other rivers or streams that come together to form it? Yes, um, there are 400 tributaries of the Juniata. The two main branches are the Frankstown branch and the Raystown branch. The Raystown branch many people are familiar with because they see it near Everett on Route 30 between Breezewood and Everett. The Raystown branch flows east from Bedford to Breezewood, near Breezewood, does a U-turn, flows west for about 10 miles, five or 10 miles, and then flows north. It forms when it's dammed, Raystown Dam. The water out of the dam joins the Frankstown branch near Huntington. The Frankstown branch comes from near Claysburg through Hollidaysburg east, through Williamsburg, and ultimately through Huntington, and joins the Raystown branch just a little southeast of Huntington, forming the main branch of the river. Where does the river end? It ends at Clark's Ferry on the Susquehanna, near the town of Duncannon. Um, the, the, there's a big bridge over, there, over uh, the Susquehanna River there. There's another bridge over the Juniata there called the Quarter Mile Bridge. A lot of people pass right, right by there uh, on, in uh, crossing the river at Clark's Ferry, the Susquehanna at Clark's Ferry. How wide is it? Uh, that depends on what part. The, the upper half from, say, Huntington to roughly Lewistown is narrower, um, a couple hundred yards wide. The lower half from Lewistown to Clark's Ferry is wider, uh, flatter land, uh, l l less, uh, fewer mountains, less uh, steep land, and uh, perhaps a half mile wide at its widest point near Millerstown, I would say, it's uh, maybe a half mile wide. It's not a wide river, it's a shallow river. It's a slow river, flows less than a mile an hour, typically in the summer. The Lani Lenape Indians called it the River of Shallows some that, long time ago. Does that have any uses? Uh, that's a good question, because the, the navigability of the Juniata is an issue. It's still an issue today. It was an issue in the 1700s when a, when a miller from uh, whose last name was Crider from Huntington, uh, on a bet, built what he called an ark, loaded it with grain and floated it down the Juniata, down the Susquehanna, through the Chesapeake Bay and all the way to Baltimore to prove that the, that the Juniata was navigable and could be used for, tra for, for such traffic, for, for commercial traffic. The Pennsylvania legislature declared both the Susquehanna and the Juniata to be public waterways and thus available for commerce uh, and, and, and thus endorsed the role of those rivers for commerce. The Juniata has never really been used much f as a navigable waterway. It's shallow. 
it's probably too shallow. Some people, however, argue that if you can float a log down the river, it's navigable. One log is enough to do it. I've heard that argument recently. Does it have rapids? It does have rapids. It, there are six classes of, ra of rapids according to a scale called the International Scale. Um, the, the class six rapids are the most dangerous, life-threatening. Few people have ever survived class six rapids. Class one rapids are thus the easiest, so to speak. There are only class one rapids on the Juniata. So the class one rapids are, are quite easily, easily handled by, a, by a, a canoer or a kayaker of moderate skill is the definition. Uh, you can easily avoid the, the rocks in a class one, in class one water. Uh, some serious canoeists and kayakers uh, would uh, laugh at class one water as it's not very dangerous, but uh, truly on the Juniata, there are sections, class one water notwithstanding, where it's dangerous. Have you been through them? Yes, I've been through them in a boat. I, I floated the entire 100-mile Juniata River two summers ago. What kind of boat? In a 14-foot aluminum John boat, a fishing boat, and floated the entire river pretty much by myself. Did you paddle or use a motor? I, I paddled. I, I, I intended, my plan was not to use a motor at all. I have an electric motor that I used in places. There are some stretches of the Juniata in the lower and near uh, the village of Center, uh, Muskrat Springs, uh, uh, Fish Commission access, where the water is, moves so slowly that it hardly moves at all. And, and literally, it could take you half a day to float a mile in, in, in that section. So in some sections, I use my electric, electric motor. Or if I decided to go back upstream, um, while fishing, I'd, I'd use my electric motor. Why'd you do that? Why'd I do the, the float? Yeah. I saw the Juniata when I was 13 years old for the first time. Uh, my grandfather took me fishing on the Juniata. Um, I never saw anything like that river in my life, before or since. Uh, a, a river that weaves its way through weed beds, weed beds of a weed called water willow. People have seen this water willow, these weed beds in the Juniata, when they drive along Route 22 near Millerstown, or as I said, in the Raystown branch near Everett, between Everett and Breezewood. Thousands of people see the, the, the true nature of the Juniata. It's a river that flows uh, sideways, as it were. I never saw that. I saw rivers in the Allegheny, Monongahela, or sort of moving lakes. The Juniata was a real river, a moving stream. Uh, almost like a piece of ribbon, ribbon candy uh, that, we, that weaves its way through these, June, through these weed beds, through the rapids, through the mountains, as the river itself does. I was fascinated by this river, believe it or not, at the age of 13, thought about it for 40 years, uh, moved back to central Pennsylvania and decided a couple years ago to float the entire river. Uh, and to write a book about the experience as well as trace its, its history. Its earliest recorded history was my goal, particularly the 16 and 1700s. Did you catch any fish that day with your grandfather? Um, I did catch some fish that day with my grandfather. What he, kind of fish? Uh, Smallmouth bass and another species that, that's native to the river called rock bass. They're called uh, red eyes. They have, a big, they have big red eyes, obviously. They're called... Um, they're called red eyes, they're called rockies. 
they're, they're a branch of the uh, smallmouth bass, member of the smallmouth bass family. That's what been, I caught. Have you been a fisherman all along? I have been a fisherman all, all, all along, uh, something that, I, that I've in, inherited. And uh, I, still f I still fish. I like to fish. I fished the entire float on the Juniata. I fished pretty much constantly when I wasn't dictating into the microphone. I had a voice-activated microphone that I used to tape uh, my observations. I document the Juniata mile by mile over its 100 miles in, in the book. Um, how, so long, I, how long did the trip take? took 15 days. Did you camp? Um, I pulled the boat out. I initially thought I would camp. The people who have done the Juniata know that it is not the easiest thing to find places to camp. Much of the ground is private, and the upper half of the river, the river is steeper, narrower, sided on both sides by cliffs. There isn't many places to camp, believe it or not. People choose some of the islands. One island in particular near Mifflintown is called Bell Island. It's some three miles long. But most of the islands are overgrown with weeds and flooded, filled with brambles, difficult to find place to camp. So my goal was to camp, but I, I, I quickly realized I was a little too old for that as well. Was so your goal I'm, to catch enough fish to keep yourself uh, alive? That was my plan too, but that fell by the, uh, that went over the dam too, so that, that didn't happen. I, I instead uh, divided the river into nine legs and arranged for people to give me a ride. I'd pull my boat out at night with my trailer and I stayed in motels. Uh, mostly I stayed near Mifflintown, which is uh, pretty much the center, center of the river. And there's a, many, there's, I think six fish commission accesses. Uh, there's nine on the Juniata entire length. Six are within 35 miles of Mifflintown. So the uh, central place for, uh, for headquarters for such a trip a good central place is Mifflintown. That's where I stayed. Were the things that you discovered along your trip that really stand out in your mind? Uh, yes, uh, the the documentary discoveries uh, stand out in my in in my mind. I took uh, approximately a thousand photographs of the Juniata, some forty of which are in the book. Uh, the water, the river, the wildlife, the deer, the great blue herons, the the egrets. Um, the nature of the water, the flow of the water stands out. That, that, that is memorable. Uh, it, it's indelible, actually, when you move along the speed of a river for 15 days, flowing about a mile an hour, I suppose, for the length of it. That, that, that was particularly me memorable. I mean, I had dreams about this river when I was a child and an adult, and I still dream about this river, ha having, having done it. The, the, the geology is interesting. There's a little bit of that in the book as well. Is the water clean? Can you drink it? it it's, it's actually very clean. And, and um, there, uh, there is in the, in, the, in the book a section on the results of water quality studies on the Juniata performed by the Susquehanna River Basin Commission. And I reported the results of these six uh, studies and interviewed a couple people who did them for the Susquehanna River Basin Commission. They did studies at various places along the Juniata over about a 10-year period. The water quality is quite good everywhere on the Juniata, with one exception, on the main branch of the Juniata, with one exception near Lewistown. They measure the water quality and they also measure uh, a factor that they call that the Susquehanna River Basin Commission calls the physical habitat in the water. 
uh, the presence of logs and rocks, the presence of falls, uh, a variety of water, slow moving, fast moving, which makes for better habitat for the fish. The Juniata is quite clear, quite, quite clean as a matter of fact, and according to the Susquehanna River Basin Commission, uh, actually mitigates some of the pollution in the lower Susquehanna. So it's quite, uh, it's quite clean. You have at the end of some of your chapters two little items with bullet points. One is uh, fishing hot spots and the other <laughs> is boating trouble spots. First yes. of all, is it, is it something that fishermen don't do to give away the hot spots? Um, uh, the hot spots is a hot spots is a is a uh, is a word that fishermen do indeed use. Uh, it's subject to one's interpretation, uh, arguable, uh, contested between fishermen. Uh, I put them in as to where I thought might be the best place to fish in a span of the river, in a leg of the river, in typically a five or six mile area. Um, some places. Every inch of the river is fishable, a hot spot. Uh, one side perhaps better than another, a hole, a pool, a falls, a particularly pretty place I would call a hot spot and did call a hot spot as well. Um, I've had readers say, you didn't name this hot spot or you missed that hot spot or did you withhold some hot spots for yourself, uh, accusing me of secrecy. but. Typically, I just I identified what I thought was a nice place to fish, nice have, places. Do you have some favorite spot along the river that someone watching this program, you would want to tell them, you've got to go see this? Um, an easy place to see the river and to see the beauty of the river is the Mifflin Town Access of the, of the Pennsylvania Fish Commission, one of the nine accesses that the Fish Commission built. It's about two and a half miles uh, upstream from the town of Mifflintown itself uh, off of Route 35. And it's an endless source of confusion for visitors because they s assume the ramp, the Mifflintown access, the Mifflintown ramp is in the town of Mifflintown, which it is not. It is, of course, up upstream. A at that ramp, you'll, you can see how the river is framed by weed beds for about a one-half mile uh, span. It's one of the most magnificent spots on the river, probably my favorite spot. The float from Mifflintown access to Mifflintown itself, some three, three miles, the river's divided by Bell Island. It's really two streams, not, not much of a river at all. If you didn't know it was a Juniata, you'd think it was a stream, almost a trout stream. So narrow it is around the island. Uh, you mentioned uh, egrets and um, yes. what was the other one? Great blue herons. Great blue herons. Did you see many of those along the river? Yes, you see them throughout the length of the river in For the people summer. people who have not seen them, how big are they? Uh, they're about four feet tall, three and a half to four feet tall. The great blue herons are grayish color, uh, bluish sometimes, but typically gray. Very wary, difficult to get near them. I have photographs of them. It's difficult to get close enough, even with a telephoto lens. They're very spooky, very wary. They fly. They see it coming. They fly. How big is the wingspan? Uh, probably four feet, four feet, five feet, I would guess. I wrote about them using information from the Fish Commission website uh, about these birds in, in, in the book as well. There are snowy egrets and great egrets. The great egret is about as tall. They're white. The egrets are white. The great blue heron is gray. The snowy egrets, uh, the, the great egret is probably four feet tall, three and a half to four feet tall, to about the same height as a great uh, blue heron. The 
The snowy egrets, white too, but smaller, maybe three feet, two and a half feet tall. Are they uncommon? Um, they're not uncommon. You see them all the way along the Juniata, you, especially from Lewistown downstream, from about the middle down. You see them a lot around Millerstown, Newport, uh, Port Royal, Mifflin Town, Amity Hall. They're, they're all along the river, especially for some reason the lower half of the river. I noted that. Any eagles along the river? There are eagles. I saw bald eagles many, many times. And other people report seeing them too. I, I, they're very wary as well. I did see one. I tried to photograph it, but I was late. I did see one swoop down as they do, as I wrote, like at, uh, as in uh, Yellowstone Park and, and, and pick a fish out of the, out of the river, which is astounding. In indeed, indeed. Where do you go if you want to see a bald eagle? Uh, pretty much anywhere along the river you could see them. Uh, I, I've seen their nests somewhat back off the river. They don't seem to nest right along the water. They're back off the river, maybe 25, 30 yards. I've seen big nests and back. They're pretty wary as well, you know, e easily spooked. Uh, I, I've seen them in, um, near Newton Hamilton in the upper stretches of the river. I've seen them uh, near Ride. I've seen them near Mount Union. These are spans in the upper uh, upper spans of the river. I've seen them near Millerstown. I've seen them near uh, Mifflintown. Um, I've seen them year after year, too, by the way, in the same place. There seems to be one that a number of people have reported near the, the so-called blind camp near Mount Union in the upper half of the Juniata. That, that bird apparently has been there year after year. Other animals you see living along the River on your trip? The yes. Deer, bears, raccoons? Deer. Like I, I saw a lot of deer. You, you, you will see a lot of deer, especially early early in the morning, of course, late in the, in the, in the evening. I've seen mink. Seen mink? Mink. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, raccoons I've seen you know, along the river. Uh, muskrats. I didn't see otters, and I don't think the otters have been reintroduced to the main branch of the Juniata. Uh, as we speak, they have been reintroduced. I believe six of them were stocked near Everett in the Raystown branch of the Juniata a year or two ago. And I believe the Fish Commission is planning to reintroduce them, if it hasn't already, to the main branch of the Juniata. I didn't see any otters, but I did see a, pretty much everything else that's along the river. I didn't see a bear uh, either. Was there a uh, much trapping that went on in uh, along the Juniata during colonial times? Was it the place where trappers went? Before yes, settlers came? trappers, hunters, traders. Yes, colonists. Yes. Well, who were the first humans to inhabit the area? Um, the first, the, the earliest documented reference I I found was a map. Actually, Captain John Smith's map dates to 1608 that makes reference, called the map of Virginia, his map of Virginia, makes reference to the Juniata. That is the earliest recorded reference that I found. Uh, makes reference to a body of water called the Uni Uata, named for the Uni Uata Haga. Two words, Uni Uata means a standing stone. Haga means people. There's a chapter in the book called The People, The Standing Stone, the earliest recorded uh, inhabitants of the Juniata Valley that I was able to, to find. And there's literally a standing stone monument there now? Yes, these Indians lived, their village, this very small tribe actually, lived at the junction of Stone Creek, sometimes called Standing Stone Creek, 
and the Frankstown branch of the Juniata in today's Huntington, town of Huntington. And they marked the entrance to their village with this monument that the trader, John Harris, who later founded the town of Harrisburg, saw and recorded in his journal in 1753 as being 14 feet tall and six inches square. There's a replica of the standing stone, the original standing stone, that's, that stands in Huntington in a, in a small park in the town today uh, with, a, with a plaque. I have a picture of the standing stone in, in, in the book. The actual standing stone disappeared along with the Uniuata Haga. This replica was erected in 1896. You have on uh, page 24 of your book, I think it's 25 different versions of the word Juniata, which have yes. shown up in different documents over the years. Yes, yes. Um, the Juniata is a very famous place in colonial Pennsylvania, more famous than ever I realized, not being a trained and a professional historian. So in reading uh, everything I could find in the minutes of the Provincial Council, the Pennsylvania Archives, and lots of other sources, about the early days in Pennsylvania, I came across many references, hundreds of references to the Juniata uh, by other names, some of which were close to the Juniata, such as the Junietta, for example, with E's instead of A's. And some are similar or less similar, let us say, to the Juniata. I found poems from the middle 1800s, a song from the middle 1800s also about the Juniata. Uh, as well as probably 30 words, I believe 25 are reported in the book, versions of the word Juniata. Some writers, um, officers of the Pennsylvania provincial government, uh, some surveyors for the Pennsylvania provincial government who worked in the Juniata Valley wrote as many as six letters, six reports I found in a given day, each one of which had a different spelling for the word Juniata. Who were the first Europeans to settle there uh, in the area? Um, this is a large group of people from a number of company, uh, countries in, in Europe, typically called the English, but they were not only from England, from Scandinavia, the German states, you, you, you name it, in, in Europe. These people entered the country typically through Philadelphia. Uh, the English, the merchant class, tended to stay in Philadelphia in the early 1700s, this occurred, 1720s. Uh, the Germans, the Pennsylvania Dutch, we call them, being farmers, left Philadelphia, went west, found great land near Lancaster and settled there. The Scotch-Irish, the third major group of the European colonists, were feisty, could not get along with the English in Philadelphia, were not city folks to begin with, could not get along with the land-hungry as it were, Pennsylvania Dutch, the Germans, and uh, set, moved farther westward, crossing the Susquehanna and entering the Juniata Valley. It is the Scotch-Irish Presbyterians who settle first in the Juniata Valley in the seven, between 1725 and 1750. Thousands of such Scotch-Irish settled the Juniata Valley. There, there are areas in the Juniata Valley uh, near Hollidaysburg, for example, where I live, there's an area called Scotch Valley, named, of course, for the many Scotch-Irish people who settled there in the early 1700s. 
You say in here, in the spring of 1749, more than 30 colonists and their families crossed the endless hills and settled illegally on Indian land in the Juniata Valley. The Lanai Lenape complained to the Iroquois about these trespassers. You yes. say they illegally settled. Whose law were they breaking to settle them? They were breaking a treaty that the Pennsylvania provincial government executed in the early 1700s with the Iroquois which controlled all the land in New York, what is today New York and pretty much Pennsylvania as well, as well as a treaty with the Lani Lenape. This treaty set aside land west of the Blue Mountains today as being that of the Indians and not available for colonization. Settlers were not permitted there. The Indians called the Blue Mountains, our Blue Mountains, the Endless Hills. Land to the east of the Blue Mountains, land essentially to the east of the Susquehanna River today, was available for colonization and the settlers were per permitted there. The, 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 the problem began when these, these feisty, stubborn, adventurous, um, in some cases criminal, uh, outlaws, the Scotch-Irish, refused to abide by this, the, the terms of this treaty, crossed the Susquehanna River illegally and settled pretty much wherever they wanted it to, to settle. In 1749, some 30 families had crossed the, did cross the Susquehanna River, entered the Juniata Valley south of today's Huntington. The, Pencil, the Indians complained to the Pennsylvania provincial government about these trespassers. The government formed a, a raiding party of six justices of the peace, a couple of other sheriffs, located these families, some of whom lived, had settled, had built cabins in today's Huntington and Fulton County asked these settlers, approached these settlers, asked them to leave, told them they were violating this agreement, they were trespassing, the settlers, the Scotch-Irish, would not leave. The sheriffs arrested these people and burned their cabins so that they would not return. That did not stop, however, the Scotch-Irish from coming more from the east. It didn't stop the ones who were uh, whose cabins were burned from, from staying either, by the way. So many cabins were burned uh, of these trespassing Scotch-Irish in 1749 in, a, in an area on the Huntington-Fulton County line that there's a village there today called Burnt Cabins. Can I ask you a little bit about yourself? Sure. You are Dr. McElnay? I am. Doctor of what? I'm a professor. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a management professor at St. Francis University in Loretto, near Altoona. I have a joint appointment. I teach undergraduates in the business department, principles of management, strategic management, organizational behavior. And I also teach in our graduate programs, in our MBA, Master of Business Administration program. How big a school is St. Francis? Uh, it's a school of about 4,000 uh, growing, especially in the graduate area. Uh, our Master of uh, Business Administration has sites, has classes in Loretto, the campus, the main campus, in State College, as a matter of fact, and in Johnstown. We have a Master of Education, Master of Industrial Relations, Master of Medical Science, Master of Occupational Therapy. Our graduate programs are, have grown sizably over the last 10 years. The undergraduate is pretty stable at about 3,000 en enrollment. How long have you been there? Um, this is my 17th year at St. Francis. Before that, I was at Seton Hall Teaching? Uh, University. I was the Chief Development Officer for Seton Hall. I used to do fundraising work. St. Francis is the fifth college or university that I've worked for. I was in development work. Uh, did you teach at the other schools? I did not. I did not. I always wanted to be a professor. 
How'd you get a job as a professor after years of working for universities and not <laughs> teaching? Uh, I applied at St. Uh, Francis when I came back uh, to this area. Uh, I taught a little bit at the Altoona School of Commerce uh, on the side to get some experience. It's now the South Hills uh, Business School, School of Business. Uh, there was an opening at St. Francis in the business department, and I applied, and I was uh, hired. Where did you grow up that uh, you were living when you visited your grandfather at age 13? Uh, I grew up in Latrobe near Pittsburgh. And uh, my father's family was originally from Bedford, uh, Everett, Yellow Creek, little villages on the Raystown branch of the Juniata. They lived there. I never did. I lived in Latrobe. Went to school at St. Vincent Prep School, which is now closed, St. Vincent College, of course, st still there. Uh, and was taken to the Raystown branch of the Juniata by my grandfather on a, on a fishing trip. What number book is this for you? Um, this is my third book. Uh, I used to write about philanthropy uh, when I was a development officer, and early in my uh, career as a professor, I wrote about philanthropy, foundation philanthropy particularly. I wrote about two books. I wrote two books about foundation philanthropy uh, before uh, this one. They were published by divisions of Simon & Schuster. Had you ever tried to write history before? Never. I, I did not. I am not. I am not. I am humbled. Uh, some of my friends are historians. I had some historians look at my work. I had some historians help me with my my plan for the book. I've had historians, you know, review review the book as well. Real historians, unlike me. Well, one of the things I learned from your book about history is William Penn. First of all, that Alfred Lord Tennyson called him the fixed light of a dark and graceless age. And second, you always hear about the king gave William Penn land to settle a debt, but I've never heard an explanation about how the debt, how can somebody, how can the king be in debt to a commoner? Mm -hmm. And it said Sir William Penn, a vice admiral in the British Navy, had filed a claim for unpaid salary against the government for 16,000 pounds, approximately $23,000 today. So Sir William Penn did work for the king and didn't get paid for it, and he basically sued the king. William Penn's father was an admiral, I believe his rank was, in the, in the British Navy. Um, worked without pay to the tune of about, as you mentioned, $23,000. I believe at the time, 16,000 pounds. Was not paid for his work. Filed a claim with the crown for this 16,000 pounds. The crown was unable to pay him in cash. He died. William Penn himself inherited this claim in his father as part of his father's estate. Tried to settle the claim with the king. The, claim, the king offered land in the new world in lieu of the 16,000 pounds owed to his father. And William Penn took it. There is a, the original charter awarding Penn uh, that, that land. I have excerpts of in the, in the book. It's interesting to read. Does it define how far west Pennsylvania goes? Um, it does. It does define. It, it does make such a, such a definition, and it's pretty much consistent with our own boundaries today, as I, under, as I understand it. I believe the north and the southern, the northern and southern boundaries of the land were clearly defined, if I'm more clearly defined, if I'm not mistaken, 
uh, back then as opposed to the west as opposed to the western boundary. Now, according to your book, uh, William Penn's sons were not chips off the old block, <laughs> or the apple fell far from the tree. What uh, what approach did they take to governing the state? Uh, th this surprised me, uh, th thinking you know perhaps they they would be much like he he was a visionary, a humanitarian. Um, a, 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 a real, uh, a real amazing figure. Hence, T Tennyson's uh, uh, attribution to, to uh, uh, Penn. Um, his sons, Richard, John, and Thomas, uh, were uh, pretty much absentee landlords. They've been called. Um, they they were interested mainly in the land that they inherited from William Penn's estate after he passed away. Of course, they were interested in selling the land, renting the land. Uh, attempting to control the Pennsylvania provincial government, attempting to control the, the, the Pennsylvania legislature at the time, the, the, the Pennsylvania Provincial Council it was called, uh, wheelers and dealers, uh, real estate developers, we might call them today, uh, venture capitalists, we might call them today, uh, self-centered, undoubtedly, uh, in some cases uh, crooked, uh, the record speaks for itself with respect to this, this uh, Act called the so-called Walking Purchase, uh, among other ventures that his sons uh, were, were engaged in, some illegal, many shady. How did they get along with the Indians? Uh, that's a good question, and, and I, I, I didn't investigate that too much. I, I, I investigated their transactions with respect to William Penn's land. I think their, their treatment of the Indians was, was negative. They tried to abu they abused the Indians in their ventures, in their agreements. They took advantage of the Indians in the sale of land, um, whenever wherever they could. They 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 essentially stole uh, all the land in the so-called walking purchase, this famous uh, uh, ripoff we would call well, call it today from from the Indians. Now that's not uh, quite in the Juniata Valley, but can you no, give a little isn't. thumbnail description of it? Uh, no, it isn't. It's in eastern Pennsylvania. It's a triangular area of thousands of acres in eastern Pennsylvania, and, and the the the, the, the uh, Penn brothers, among others, a couple of the other their cohorts, uh, were in charge of the provincial land office. Uh, cooked up this scheme for as far as a man could walk, that was the term, in a day and a half. The Indians, th this land would be available. The Indians thought that would only be a short distance. It ended up being an enormous distance because uh, Penn's sons, plus a few of their, uh, their cohorts, uh, hired three athletes, their names are in the book, three tall people with men with great strides, a couple of athletic types, they cleared a path for these people to walk, these three. They essentially cheated. The men were supposed to walk. Instead, they ran. The Indians came out to witness parts of this, uh, this so-called walk, uh, warned the, the, the walkers that they weren't walking, they were running. Um, the, the, uh, the, the Penn brothers uh, cheated their way into this, piece of, into this humongous piece of land. Uh, so the relationship with the Indians was one of taking, taking advantage of, of the Indians and, and, the, and their land. When did the nastiness with the Indians start? When did the raids start? Um, it, about the year 1750, the so-called Indian Wars, the Pennsylvania Indian Wars, the Minzi, one of the three tribes of the Lenape, the, what we call today the Delaware Indians, um, uh, essentially said enough is enough. The other two tribes moved 
relatively quietly pushed across Pennsylvania into what is today Ohio in less than 70 years. The Menzies stayed and fought and, and drew the line at the Blue Mountains, the Endless Hills. People who crossed that line in the view of the Menzies were trespassing, in the view of the treaty were trespassing. The Menzies decided to retaliate led by a couple of, of uh, Indians, uh, one whose name was Shingas, S-H-I-N-G-A-S, and another one whose name was Tewea, T-E-W-E-A, who went by the moniker Captain Jacobs. He was given that name because he, by the colonists, because he looked like a colonist, a fellow colonist by that, by that nickname. The word captain wasn't an honor, was an honorary title, not necessarily a military one. For, for a colonist, a citizen at that time. The, these Minzi, led by these uh, two Indians, uh, established uh, villages on, this, on the uh, Juniata all the way as far west as Catan, today's Catanning. And from there launched a series of raids in the Juniata Valley over a 10-year period in which 1,000 colonists were killed, uh, captured, tortured. Many instances that I uncover uh, of, 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 of these murders by these Indians. Uh, some estimates have the number of colonists killed or captured during that 10-year period as high as 3,000. I went with the number 1,000, which I saw more often. No one knows for sure. There are tales of these murders that are documented, of kidnappings, tortures as well, eyewitness accounts. Were the Indians in league with the French at all at the time? Yes, they, they, were, they were indeed. The French and the English were vying for what is today western Pennsylvania. The French having established a foothold in northern Pennsylvania, northwest Pennsylvania, Erie, had come down the Allegheny River, cut a path from Erie to the Allegheny, the headwaters of the Allegheny, established a fort in today's Pittsburgh, Fort Duquesne, were vying to control that part of Pennsylvania, today's western Pennsylvania thinking that if the French were thinking that if they could control that part of today's Pennsylvania, they would stop the English movement, settlement, pretty much at central Pennsylvania and freeze the English from settling any farther west in Pennsylvania and thus freeze them pretty much in central Pennsylvania, the Juniata Valley. The English uh, saw the need to defeat the French and, and thus control and begin to settle more westerly and throughout today's Pennsylvania and ultimately into Ohio. So that territory is very uh, highly cont contested. The French and the English both tried to secure the friendship, the, the trust, the, the support of the Indians in that part of the, of, of the state uh, against e each other. So some of the Indians sided with the French. Some of the Indians, such as the Minzi of the tribe of the Lenape, already had a grudge against the English colonists for driving them across Pennsylvania from their homeland, in, ancient homeland in De the Delaware Valley. They were ready to side against the English, and some of those people joined the French in these Indian raids, by the way, on a fort called Fort Granville near today's Lewis Lewistown. Other Indians sided with the English and threw their lot in uh, with, with, with the British uh, colonists and the British government. Who are Marie Leroy and Barbara Leininger? Uh, my two favorite uh, people uh, from, the from the Pennsylvania uh, colonial period. Marie Leroy and Barbara Leininger were two 12-year-old girls. They were Swiss, and they, their families came, to, came uh, here to provincial uh, Pennsylvania 
in, in the middle 1700s, settled on Penn's Creek, a tributary of the Susquehanna near the Juniata Valley, near today's Richland, a town of Richfield, excuse me, Richfield in Juniata County. I believe it's northern Juniata County. Um, these two 12-year-old girls witnessed a band of Indians in the, during the Indian Wars, this terrorist raid period in the provincial government, witnessed a band of Indians in October uh, kill their parents and their siblings, all but a few of their siblings, and take these two 12-year-old girls prisoner. These two 12-year-old girls, girls were taken first to Clearfield, what we today call Clearfield. The Indians called it the Clear Fields, by the way, uh, later to Catanning, later to today's Pittsburgh, uh, ultimately to northwest Pennsylvania, uh, Beaver Falls, Shenango, Venango, those are all Indian terms, and ultimately in a, in a three-year period they were taken as far west as today's Ohio by the Indians, kidnapped by the Indians, made to work for the Indians. These two 12-year-old girls escaped from the Indians in the in the middle of winter in February after three years of captivity and walked, found their way back from today's Ohio all the way to today's Carlisle, where they were from. And when they returned, they wrote uh, the story of their captivity and their escape from the Indians and their return uh, home through Ligonier, through Fort Ligonier, uh, through Carlisle, uh, and ultim ultimately all, all the way back to, to the area near Gettysburg, near today's Gettysburg, near their homes. Their story is called The Narrative of Marie Leroy and Barbara Leininger. And it's a rare document uh, from the Pennsylvania colonial period. It was, it was uh, translated from the German in 1896, I believe, by a minister from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, whose name is Edmund de Schweinitz. So it was originally written, I guess, in, in German, undoubtedly in German, and translated uh, by this uh, reverend. In, in Marie Leroy and Barbara Leininger's narrative, there is a sentence which, which uh, um, uh, moves me to, 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 to this uh, day. They, they pretended to be sick in, uh, in Ohio. The Indians separated these two girls, put them in another tent so they would not infect the other Indians in the, in the, in the tribe, in the village. Uh, in pretending to be sick, the Indians left Malone. These two girls left, crawled, sneaked out of the village with two other male uh, prisoners, boys as well, teenage boys. And they crawled through the snow, through this village, past the huts of the Indians. They didn't use teepees. They built huts covered with bark. In the middle of the snow, snow up to their knees, they re reported past 16 dogs that the Indians owned in the village and the girls wrote in their narrative, quote, in the merciful providence of God, not a single one of these dogs barked. And when I read that for the first time in their narrative, I, just, I, I, I read it at home in the evening and I put that down and I thought, that is just astounding. And so they are my two favorite uh, characters from the, from the uh, Pennsylvania uh, frontier. Do you know what happened to them in their lives after they went um, back to I, I don't. Uh, there's work on Barbara Leininger. Uh, many uh, freed captives or escaped, freed by the terms of treaties with the Indians, or captives who escaped uh, sought to be reunited with their families. And in some cases, they were reunited. These attempts at reunification came at places like Carlisle. 
and the families would, would come, in this case three, four, five years later after the sons and daughters had been kidnapped. The Indians preferred to kidnap children. They could adapt to the Indian ways better than adults, incidentally, um, uh, and try to locate their children who had changed physically, having grown by three or four, four years, were unable to do so. There is a story, I don't know if it's uh, true, and I didn't in investigate this uh, th uh, very thoroughly. Barbara Leininger's mother tried to identify her at one of these reunion sites with a number of children um, around and a number of families circulating, all trying to find each other, and could not find her, could not identify her, and began to sing a song, a, a, a religious song, a gospel song um, uh, at the time, a prayer song uh, that she had sung to this child as a, as when, when Barbara Leininger was younger, as a, as a younger child. And, and uh, Barbara apparently, according to the story, recognized the song and the voice, and they were reunited. There is a, a series of paintings uh, and lithographs that depict that, that uh, incident, uh, by the way, that I have seen. Who's Jack Armstrong? Uh, Jack Armstrong was a trader um, who uh, worked in, along the Juniata Valley, uh, typically near today's Mount Union, uh, Newton Hamilton, along the Allegheny Path, which was a footpath that ran from the Susquehanna pretty much right along the Juniata River all the way to Catanning, originally an Indian path called the Catanning Path. Uh, Catanning's an Indian word. Uh, later called the Frankstown Path, sometimes referred to as the Frankstown Path East, Frankstown Path, path West. Jack Armstrong, a tough character, had a brother by the name of Alexander Armstrong. Armstrong settled a debt with an Indian whose name was Musamelan, who lived in today's Sunbury, what the Indians called Shemokin, by taking Musamelan's horse in place in lieu of this debt. The debt is unclear in the record. The horse happened to be, happened to have been this Indian Musamelan's wife's horse. And she, according to the record, was not happy with the disappearance of her horse, the fact that her, her husband gave it away to settle this debt. And so she pestered her husband to get this horse back. Armstrong went west along the Juniata with the horse. The Indian took two young, this Musamelan Indian took two young Indians with him with the intention, the younger Indians did not know this, the intention was to kill Armstrong and his two uh, manservants, they were called, two employees, fellow traders. And, and, and get that, in, that uh, horse back. Uh, Jack Armstrong was murdered by this Indian as well as his two uh, servants, his two employees. Uh, near Mount Union, between the towns of Mount Union and Mapleton along Route 22 in Huntington County, in a stretch of the river, a three-mile stretch, one of the most magnificent spans, by the way, of the river, it's called Jack's Narrows. And it is named for Jack Armstrong, this this uh, trader. Some people say it's named for another fellow, uh, a, a, an anecdotal character called Captain Jack. Oh, I write about, about him too. Yeah. Um, that's another uh, story. This is Jack Armstrong's brother, Alexander, sought to have the provincial government investigate this murder. He would not accept the answer, no. The provincial government at the time said, what can we do? They're Indians. They don't understand our laws. We can't prosecute them. They don't speak English. So essentially the provincial government threw up its hands when its settlers were killed or made some form of range, some form of restitution with the leaders of the Indians. 
Armstrong, Alexander Armstrong, Jack Armstrong's brother would not go for this. He would not buy this. And he insisted on a search party, formed one, went to Shemokin, today's Sunbury, got the Indians to back his search party, and they went to the Juniata Valley, along the Juniata River where this Jack Armstrong murder occurred, located the bodies of these three people. Got evidence that the, the Indians had killed, uh, that this Indian Musa Milan had killed these three white traders from the two younger Indians who had accompanied this Musa Milan on this uh, killing spree. Uh, the two younger Indians were, were not directly involved in, in, in the murder. Uh, Armstrong insisted to the provincial government that these Indians be tried, that, that this Indian be tried according to white man's laws, and the provincial government agreed for the first time and tried this Indian, Musa Milan, uh, the first time that Indians were tried for capital crime, for capital crime in Pennsylvania, it's the first recorded instance, found him guilty and hung him. And this, this, this incident, the murder of Jack Armstrong, thus as a result of his brother, the determination of his brother Alexander, changed Pennsylvania law on capital crimes committed by Indians. That's one of the significances of the Jack Armstrong uh, inc incident. And who was Captain Jack? Uh, Captain Jack is, the, is by, by far the most famous uh, personage uh, in, the, in the Juniata Valley during the colonial period. Um, there are a number of stories about Captain Jack that I uncovered from other people's research as well as my own. Um, he was said to have lived near Mount Union, near the town of Mapleton, in the same area called Jack's Narrows, hence the confusion. His family, it is said, he came home one day after a fishing trip, a fishing trip on the river. His family, his wife and three children were murdered. In one account it's three children, one account it's two children, and yet another account he has four children. There's a number of stories of this fellow. He uh, became enraged, uh, entered the woods by himself, uh, lived and declared war, as it were, one man uh, war on these I Indians, terrorizing Indians up and down the Juniata Valley for some long time. Um, I located every reference I could find uh, about this person, Captain Jack, um, many of which mention historical events in which he is said to have participated, such as Braddock's march to uh, attempt to take Fort Duquesne from the French. I then traced the actual historic record of each of these events, and I found no instance, I'm sorry to say, that this fellow was a real person. In the diaries of traders, the, the journals of missionaries, the orderly books of soldiers, the official military record, the surveys of provincial surveyors, uh, orders of Pennsylvania political figures, uh, other kinds of journals. The, the actual historical record from that period has absolutely no reference to this man. This, however, my historian friends helped me with, does not mean that he did not exist. Many people, such as a lawless kind of a ranger as a Captain Jack, might not want themselves in the historic record, might have avoided such detection in writing, though it's highly unlikely in, in any case. So I entertain uh, the romantic notion that this person may have existed, even though the historic record I report in the book shows absolutely, has absolutely no evidence that he actually existed. The, the uh, 
students at Mount Union High School for years had the, the, the nickname, the Captain Jacks. And people to this day, I get the Captain Jack question uh, perhaps more than any other question when I, when I do signings and appearances and so forth. People in the Juniata Valley, especially near uh, uh, Mount Union, uh, Mapleton, even Huntington, Altoona, they, they, they are firm believers in, in the existence of this, uh, this heroic uh, figure, Captain Jack. He's actually mentioned in, in probably 90 works of history from the colonial period. And, and the historians who wrote about him apparently never checked whether he was, uh, he was uh, alive. Uh, as a historian by the name of Shirley Wagoner in Huntington, who I have never met, but is a, is a, I'm, a, I'm a fan of hers, wrote uh, an, an article for a Pennsylvania Journal of History. I, I think it was Pennsylvania History Journal uh, about this Captain Jack some years ago. And her research uh, encouraged me to, to investigate uh, him uh, further. And you mentioned, uh, we're just about out of time, you mentioned Fort Granville. Yes. And a couple other areas along Juniata. If you travel it, is there any place where you can see any evidence of any settlements or forts? Um, about all you can see is a, is a sign of Fort Granville. There is a Pennsylvania Historical and Historic and Museum Commission marker, one of the blue and yellow uh, markers, in near the town of Huntington, just west of Huntington on Route 22, near the Pennsylvania Fire Academy. Behind the Pennsylvania Fire Academy was the apparent location of Fort Granville, built on the uh, on the bank of the Juni of, on the Juniata in a ravine that that the builders of the uh, uh, fort, a man by the name of George Krogan at the time, commissioned by the government to find a location to build a fort, thought would be the perfect place to, for a fort and a perfect, uh, over, uh, perfect uh, overview of the area and would be able to defend from any Indian attacks. It was a, it was a disastrous pl place. We don't have time to tell the story of it, so <laughs> that whoever is interested in the story of Fort Granville will have to read your book. Uh, is this, you said this is your first crack at history. You think you'll it do is. it again? Um, I think I may. I, I, I think I may do it again. I, I, I'm thinking of a few things, even you know, down, down the road. I, I, I think I may. So I think you'll time take the, will tell. Think you'll take the canoe trip again? Uh, I'd like to trip? do that again. It, it, it's hard. It, it, it seems romantic and paddling and drifting along, but it, it, it's hard. It, it's hot. The river is so shallow. You, you're, you get stuck a lot, like every ten feet. You know, on the rocks, you got to jump out. Your weight, you're wet to the waist all day long. Um, you're sun whipped, they say, by the end of the day. It's a tough, it's a tough river to float in the middle of the summer when it's low. We're out of time. This is the cover of the book we've been talking about, Juniata River of Sorrows. Dennis McElnay, thank you very much. Thank you, sir. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.